Well, I know that you've heard the statement before, what goes around comes around. And by the way, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Um, You might have heard what goes around comes around, but maybe you've also heard the expression, you reap what you sow. Our culture uses the term karma, and that's kind of the same idea, except karma leaves out the sovereignty of God. But it is the result of what we see, that if a person does something good, that they will eventually experience something good. But if they sow bad, they will reap something bad. And so there is this principle that we see in the world, but also we see it multiple times in Scripture as well. So we started studying the book of Micah, and um, here are a few of the themes and purposes for those of you who weren't here last week or for those of you who just want a reminder of this little book in the Old Testament, uh, this minor prophet named Micah. He wrote in detail about the Messiah and the character of Yahweh. He revealed to us who the true good ruler is, and in Micah chapters 4 and 5, which we'll get into in a few weeks, we will see that he's talking about the Messiah himself, Jesus, and given us detail, even as to where specifically he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah also cared a lot about justice and criticized oppression, corruption, materialism, idolatry, immorality, and poor leadership. So Micah talks a lot about leadership. He talks about the true ruler, but also about false rulers as well. And we'll get into that a little bit today. Like Joel, Micah wrote about God's justifiable discipline of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, but saw God fulfilling his promises to the nation eventually, because when God makes a promise, he fulfills it. Micah lamented because Israel and Judah would not listen to his warnings. Hence the title of the sermon series, Prophet and Loss, listen to us as they cry out and want to be heard, want to be understood. They want their words to be heeded because it's really not their words. It's the word of the living God that you need to repent and change and get back on track with what God's will is for your life. And so an outline of the book of Micah, this short seven chapter book is about the future judgment for past sins and lousy leaders. In fact, we're in the midst of this section already. Then chapters 4 and 5 reveal to us some detail about the coming Messiah from Micah's perspective. From our perspective, it's about the Messiah who's already come. Future good things because of past promises. And then finally, the last two chapters, the call for repentance and the changing of one's mind um, for present sins because of who God is and also what he has done and what he plans on doing as well. So Micah preached to the nation of Judah but also to Israel, which is the northern kingdom. In chapter 1, Micah graphically revealed God's judgment against the nation. In fact, he used a theophany, which is kind of like taking God and kind of humanizing God a little bit, almost making into a physical creature. And it pictures this giant being bounding from mountain to mountain. But as he does that, is his jumping from one high point to another melts the mountains. And that's a picture of God's judgment, his justifiable discipline and judgment against Israel and Judah because of what they have done, because of their national sins. 
So now he gives the reasons for Israel's judgment. He tells how corrupt they have become and how they broke the Mosaic covenant and thus were due discipline. Because it's not like God has never told them the results of their sins. He has told them time and time again that if you break this bilateral two-way agreement that I made with Moses and the whole nation of Israel... If you do good, you'll receive good. If you do bad, you'll receive bad. This principle of lex talionis, or you reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. That will take place. So he gives the reasons for Israel's judgment, and he tells how corrupt that they have become. So let's look at the first two and a half verses of chapter 2. Micah says this. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. So the picture that Micah paints here of Israel is that there are powerful people who abuse the rights and the possessions of other people. In fact, in verse 1, the word in the Hebrew for what is translated those or referring to this group of oppressors can be translated as family. I loved hearing that. It's like a family of people. And, of course, with me, with my background of growing up in the state of New Jersey, and I heard the word the family, I immediately thought about the mafia. So it was like these people who have all this power, all this influence, who will do anything to get what they want, whether it's legal means, because the mafia has a lot of legal businesses too, but they also have a lot of illegal businesses. They'll do whatever it takes to get what they want. So they are the family, you know, the mafia, the group of people who are willing to stop at nothing to get what they want. These abusive rich people plot and plan on how they can defraud people out of their possessions, their land, as well as their inheritance. Judah, like most ancient societies and like most developing societies in present, our present day world, they had a wealthy class and everybody else was poor. Maybe a few in the middle class, shop owners and people like that. But it was either, you're either rich or really poor. Abraham Lincoln had a Great statement on poor people. He said, God must like poor people because he made so many of them. And it's true. We have a lot of poor people across the world, impoverished individuals. Um, Our experience living in this little brief period of time in the 20th and 21st century of having a very large middle class is very unusual in the human experience 
since the beginning of recorded history. This is very odd and unusual. We do have billionaires, but we have the overwhelming majority of people in the middle or working class. People have what they need, plenty of food. Even though we have a high inflation rate, we still have it really pretty easy or pretty easy lives. And then, of course, we always have poor people. Jesus promised you will always have poor people amongst you. And so, of course, the example that maybe have popped into your mind already of people who are wealthy and powerful who take advantage of those who are less powerful is the story of Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 21. If you remember Ahab and Jezebel obviously being king and queen and very powerful, Ahab um, coveted Naboth's vineyard, this beautiful vineyard that Naboth nurtured and cared for and owned. And he coveted it. He didn't particularly do anything about it. But then his wife Jezebel actually did something about it. And she went and got Naboth knocked off. So that way they could own that coveted vineyard. So what does Micah do here? Well, he announces a woe. And in the New Testament, we see some examples of woes, like in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus issued a series of woes against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But the Old Testament prophets also issued forth many woes as well. What is a woe? A woe is a statement that announces guilt and an impending judgment against those who are guilty. Jesus issued woes against whole cities. He said, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, because if Tyre and Sidon, if they had received the miracles that you witnessed, they have they would have repented in ash in in in, um, in ashcloth. They would have repented with their hearts if they had seen the miracles that I performed in Bethsaida and Chorazon and some of the other cities of Galilee. But you have such hard hearts. So woe to you. You're guilty and there will be judgment against you. Most certainly that did take place. Their crimes were just so blatant too. They would like wake up in the morning and think about how they could plot to take over someone's land and steal their inheritance. And they would actually do it during broad daylight. So their crimes, their sins were blatant. They didn't care. They didn't care if other people saw them doing things to steal the valuable possessions of other of other people. Since they are people of status, wealth, and political influence, many have successfully added new land and property to their holdings. And so they covet people's lands, which is a direct violation, of course, of the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. Someone wrote that their inappropriate and lustful desires lead to actions that ignore the theological principle that who owns the land to begin with? God, of course, owns the land. And he is the one who distributes it to the people. He has given it to families as an eternal gift to them. That is their land and should not be taken. The powerful people rob some, oppress others, and defraud whomever they wish. Someone else wrote, In Israel's social order, a man's identity and status to the community rested on his household or family dwelling place and the land. Lose it, and he lost all the rights which were based on its possession. He had no place in the community, no 
renting of a condo or an apartment. No, you owned your dwelling place. That was your establishment. That, to a large degree, was your identity. And so the Israelites, as we know today, with the present-day Israelis, they care a lot about their land. It is their land, they believe. And God's word would back that up. But like Joel wanted Judah to know that the locusts, the reason why they came, the reason why the locusts came in such full devastating force was not because of a freak of nature, but it was because of their sin. The reasons why the locusts came was not because of a natural reason. It was because of a supernatural reason. It was God's discipline of the nation, as Joel recorded those words. And Micah wanted to do a similar thing. Micah wanted Judah to know that their judgment was not because of Assyrian imperialism or the fortunes of blind destiny. The reason why the northern kingdom would be swallowed up by Assyria and then ultimately the southern kingdom of Judah would be swallowed up by Babylon is because of a spiritual reason. It had nothing to do with Assyrian or Babylonian imperialism, although those are secondary and tertiary causes or reasons. But the main reason is because they did not obey the Mosaic Covenant. And time and time again, they rebelled against God as a nation. They didn't do their side of the bargain. The Abrahamic Covenant was unilateral. It was all God's work, all his action. It was unconditional. But the Mosaic Covenant was a two-way street. And they didn't do what they should have done. And so what are some examples of that? Well, here's a snippet of the Mosaic Covenant, that this is what you should do in regards to other people, other people who are less powerful than you, perhaps. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. So this is the way you should treat other people. People who are less powerful than you. People who are uh, from a different place than you or are in your land now. You should treat them with dignity as well as compassion. And so what happens if you don't do it? If you do not follow the Mosaic Covenant, this is a snippet, an example of... The results, you reap what you sow. If you don't treat people well in your own country and and you're guilty of a national sin, of oppression, this is what will take place. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known will eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see, 
The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you can, of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. So the standard and the results, if you do not come close to following that standard, there should be compassion instead of outright greed. This is why I made you a unique nation. The other nations around you did not have these standards. But I've given you my law. I've given you this constitution. I've given you this blueprint so that way you can be a unique healthy nation you can be a shining city on a hill to all the nations of the world because i've chosen you as my ethnic group i've chosen you as my people group as my nation and you are not the end you are only a means to the to an end so that way other people will know who I am. You are to be my testifiers, my witnesses to a lost and dying world. So they should show compassion instead of greed. And if you do not follow the pathway of compassion and go down the pathway of greed, calamity will afflict those who oppress others. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. It was easily and consistently, persistently spelled out for them but yet they chose a different path. They rejected, in essence, the word of God. Where do we stand with this? I have an idea, and I think you'll agree with, and as we see this through our American 21st century eyes, I will submit to you this idea, that Americans do not understand persecution or oppression. We definitely do not, we understand it intellectually maybe, but we do not understand it from an experiential standpoint. Today, ironically, is Persecuted Church Day. It's the one day of the year, the first Sunday in November, where we're called to remember and recognize who Millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ in various countries are experiencing direct opposition and persecution. Um, all the major countries of the world, except maybe this one you could say is an exception at this time anyway, Christians are directly and blatantly persecuted in various ways. China, India, Russia, Iran, the major countries of the world, plus many other countries as well. In fact, in Iran, that's been billed this past week as where Christians are most persecuted. But ironically, it's also where the church is growing the fastest. And that's because they present such a stark difference between the tone and tenor of that oppressive culture and the good news of Jesus Christ. The culture teaches and practices horrible oppression, a lack of liberty, a lack of opportunity, and an oppressive demonic religion, the religion of Islam, is in the mainstream. But then there's the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
which teaches us about a God who is gracious and kind and so loving that he sent his own son to die for us. And he loves us. That's his motivation. Even when we're not lovable, he still has other-centered benevolence toward us, and he wants to be in a relationship with him. He's a God who is both transcendent but also imminent. He's nearby. The God of the Muslims is only transcendent, what they say anyway. But our God, also in stark contrast to the God of the Muslims, is knowable, and he also wants to be known. That's why he's transcendent, but also nearby at the same time. A stark 180-degree contrast to what those people are experiencing. And so the church is growing by leaps and bounds because they teach the truth about the Word of God. And in the Word of God, that is what teaches us about who God is. That's the main theme of the Bible, not our salvation. That's only a means to an end. It's a means to reconcile, to reconnect us back to the creator, sustainer God that is contained within the pages of Scripture, or at least revealed within the pages of Scripture. So today is Persecuted Church Day. So, do an unusual thing right now. Let's have a little pause in the sermon and talk to God directly on behalf of the persecuted church. So will you join me in that endeavor? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you, Lord, for the continued faithfulness of the persecuted church. And we pray that that faithfulness would be maintained. That brothers and sisters, millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of them in various countries right now are living lives very different from ours We really can't claim to experientially understand what they are going through. But we sympathize with them and we pray for their faithfulness. That they would maintain the exposition of scripture. That they would maintain their testimonies. Their witness of you, the Son, and the Spirit. So we pray that they would be encouraged. We pray that they would be successful in their faithfulness to you and that despite the opposition despite the persecution the church would grow in numbers leaps and bounds we pray these things in your son's name as well the church or americans do not understand persecution Uh, we also do not understand oppression That word is thrown around a lot in the last few years. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it seems like everybody is being oppressed. But perceived oppression or fake oppression is really a key tool of cultural Marxism. And I've talked about this before. It's not economic Marxism, although it would eventually lead to that. But cultural Marxism has its goal of the complete disruption of our society So that way it'll be torn down and a new culture, a new society can be built in its place. One that is quite unfavorable to our worldview. Cultural Marxism uses claims of systemic racism, critical theory, inequities, and ecological catastrophe 
to divide, cause disruption, chaos, and eventual revolution to remake society in a Marxist state. Perceived or made-up oppression and victimhood is what is happening here. And we see examples of it. In some cases, we see protests. In fact, the protests that took place at the White House yesterday, almost breaching the fence of the White House property, is a really good example of this attempt to completely upheave our culture and our society. Real oppression is not happening here and now, but it's happening across the world. Now, unless you are an ethnic minority who lived in the U.S. before 1980, you don't know what systemic oppression is. You might have experienced individual racism, and racism is a sin from the pit of hell. But we do not have systemic oppression in this country. And if you disagree with that, just please go to a developing nation and you'll see and experience exactly what systemic oppression is. So this is what, in a real way, the people of Israel, the poor people of Israel, were experiencing true systemic oppression. They had nowhere else to go. If their home or their property or their inheritance was being taken by somebody more economically and more politically powerful than them, they had no way to appeal it. They just had to experience its loss. And then the subsequent loss of their own identity. That's how precious their property was to them. So to steal by taking advantage of one's power position over others is a group or national sin. Israel and Judah would suffer because they allowed it to take place. And so the system was guilty because they allowed the system to be abused. That was not God's original intention. God wanted compassion to people less powerful through the Mosaic Covenant. But they allowed their nation to become like every other tribe that surrounded them. Israel and Judah would suffer because they allowed it to take place. Whatever they took from others, though, is exactly what they would lose. Quid pro quo. You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. Look at what the middle part of verse 3 all the way into chat, uh, verse 5 says. It says, you will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. And that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. And so this is kind of like a sarcastic lament. It's almost like a, a very brief verse or, or song that some anonymous person sings about the fate of the oppressors. That they are going to experience the same things as the people who they oppressed. You reap what you sow. 
they will experience great loss. Someone wrote that this sorrow of lament song focuses on the hopelessness of the powerful, their loss of property. Today, one might mockingly say, isn't it too bad? It's so unfortunate what these rich people had to go through. What they coveted and stole is now being coveted and taken from them. They're going to end up with nothing. Doesn't it just break your heart to see them get what they deserve? I could almost hear Anthony Oliver sing a song like that. You know, he'd be the perfect one to sing a song about the experiences of a rich person or a powerful political figure who lost it all. A sarcastic lament against the powerful because they're experiencing the same things that they inflicted on other people. The Israelites, they were given so many benefits. They were given the land. Um, before that, they were given the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant, these packages of promises that they had, been, had received. They, they received this land flowing with milk and honey. They received the perfect law of God. They were an identifiable people group. They had it all. But then they would lose it all because of their continually bad choices. And so others would ridicule them. So they'd lose their reputations. They lost their land and they lost their national identity. That gave them, gave them dignity. And so they would lose their dignity as well. And then they would be utterly ruined. So they lost many of their liberties and their freedoms as well. And they had no control. Um, they won't be there to influence or receive the land. Verse 5 is a difficult passage to interpret. It says, therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. And so there'll be no capacity. There's no like office of land distribution. You have no say in who gets what. Why? Well, because a foreign power owns it all. And so this was God's methodology to decide who gets what piece of real estate, and it was done by lot. In Joshua chapter 14, it says this, Now there are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. So it was done by lot, just what verse 5 says. Their inheritance was, were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Moses had granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. For Joseph's descendants had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there were two and a half tribes east of the Jordan River, nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan River. The Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. So the Israelites divided the land just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so the land was parceled up between the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, of course, each within those tribes, there would be clans. And in each of the clans, there would be families. So everybody would get a piece of real estate as their own. And that's their, that's their inheritance. That's their identity. That's their dwelling place. And they could do whatever they wanted with that land as long as it was within the standards of the Mosaic Covenant. And so... You're not going to be able to divide any land up because there won't be the ability to do so because Assyria and Babylon are going to own it all. And it's all because of your really stupid choices. And so those who plot 
those who plot to hurt other people will lose their dignity, they'll lose their reputation, and they'll lose their freedom as well. Everything you inflicted on other people, same thing's going to happen to you. And it's not like you weren't warned at all. No, you knew it because it was written in the Mosaic Covenant. The principle of you reap what you sow is one of the most powerful and consistent in Scripture. We can see it lived out in daily life as well. What goes around comes around. We see it all through Scripture. We see it in the Old and the New Testament. We see it proclaimed. We also see it lived out by examples. Proverbs 22.8 says, Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, and the rod they wield in fury will be broken. And then the Galatians 6.8, it's reflected in the New Testament. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So that same idea is repeatedly made through the Bible. J. Vernon McGee says, this is the point of this verse, of these verses. The principle stated here is immutable, invariable, unalterable, and cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed one iota and is applicable to every sphere and field of life. When you sow wheat, you will get wheat. You will never pick a squash off of a walnut tree. Sometimes a watermelon vine extends out 20 feet in one direction, but it has never been known to make the mistake of putting a pumpkin on the end of it. It always puts a watermelon out there. There is wheat being found in the tombs in Egypt that was put there 5,000 years ago. They planted up, planted it, and guess what? It came up wheat. In 5,000 years, the seed did not forget that it was wheat. When you sow, you will reap, and that will never change. Evidence, just one of many evidences for the truth of Scripture. We see that principle lived out. Oh, yeah, we may not like the timing of the reaping part, but yet it eventually happens. Whatever you plant, that is what will come up. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Jacob sowed deception what happened to him? He got deceived by Laban. Ahab and Jezebel sowed death. And what happened to them? They died in not a good way. Saul or Paul sowed stoning of Christians. And even he as a Christian received a stoning or two. And even though we're believers in Jesus Christ, we will not suffer the penalty for our sins in eternal death, but we will still suffer the consequences of our sins in this life. We won't suffer the consequence of our sin, singular, body of sin, but we will experience the consequences of our individual sins, especially when those sins become a pattern. This is an incentive, I believe, to treat people really well. <laughs> because you reap what you sow. It's an incentive for us not to gossip against others because that will happen to you, I guarantee it. It'll be an incentive for us not to slander, to 
keep our mouths shut. Because if we slander others, yeah, we'll be slandered too. Um, it's an incentive not to lie because we hate being lied to. That is just a twist in our guts. It's an incentive for not uh, being cheap, but to be generous with others. Um, it's an incentive to not be rude to others. And yes, this even counts for the customer service counter at Kohl's or Walmart or Lowe's. And if I see it taking place, I will say something to you about it. If I see one of you, be rude to even those store workers. This principle counts for everything, but you know what? It takes place in every aspect of life, in every relationship, but there's only one exception. You know what that exception is? Where you won't reap what you sow? That exception just hit me. The exception is the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we, we, we won't reap that. Well, we've sowed a lot of sin. Sin that's imputed from Adam's choices in the garden that's inherited in our sin natures from our fathers and also confirmed by our many, many, many countless individual sins. So just like in baseball, go Texas Rangers, right? But just like in baseball, three strikes and you are out. Um, Imputed, inherited, and individual sins, we are out. The results of sin, Paul says in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. And so the thing that we should reap is eternal separation from God. That's what you and I deserve. But this is the one exception to the principle that you reap what you sow. But yet, technically, the principle still applies because the, the one who reaped the results of what we have sowed, his name is Jesus Christ. And so we don't get the results of our sin for eternity, but rather we get the blessing and the grace of having been reconnected back to God, and then we get to enjoy him forever as he enjoys us forever but then in this life in the practical things insofar as we establish patterns in individual acts we will most certainly reap what we sow let's pray together father we come before you thank you for what you're doing in our world we love to watch you work father help us to be patient with others help us not to be rude to lie to slander to gossip. Um, Help us to treat people fairly simply because that is what will happen to us. And the bottom line is we want good things to happen to us. And so we pray, Father, that you will help us to um, become more like Christ who always did the right thing and always, even now in real time, does the right thing as he 
defends us against the accusations and the attacks of the evil one. So we thank you for pulling back the curtain of the supernatural and the spiritual to reinforce something that we probably already knew, that we will reap what we sow in this life. So help us, Lord, to make good choices, to establish new patterns through the power of the Spirit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.